Well, I think that if there are beliefs that our church holds, that we hold deeply and that we think are true, then we should be trying to convince people. We should be trying to convince the unconvinced. And I am unconvinced. I am not convinced that women are not able to teach. I believe that women are fully equal in role and gifting within the church and that they can teach men and that they should be able to be ordained. And if the belief of the church is that that's not the case, that women can't teach, that women cannot be elders, that there are specific roles that women can't hold, then somebody should be from the pulpit trying to tell me why that's not the case. Like, why it is a beautiful thing that women can't teach. And, and I've gotten the answer that I said, of it's a secondary issue. It's not important. And it is important to me. <laughs> like, it's not a secondary issue to me. And also, it's not a secondary issue to our denomination. Like, it's not a secondary issue to the PCA. We're talking to Brenna, a mom of two, manager at a tech company, 10-year member of Grace Silicon Valley, and current member of the Diaconate Mercy Team. What did you realize about the topic of women at Grace? The biggest realization that I had around that was what I had shared in my membership interview, being very clear from the beginning of like, I don't hold this belief. Like, I do believe that women are equal in roles and and can hold any role within the church that women can teach. And getting the message like, that is completely welcome here. You can believe things that are different than what we hold as the theology of the church. And I felt super comforted by that. That felt like such a reassuring message. And it was given in a way that I do believe it was like a reassuring way. But what that's actually saying is like, you, your beliefs don't actually matter. Like at the end of the day, you're allowed to be a heretic. (laughs) You're allowed to believe things that aren't true. You're allowed to believe bad theology because you're not actually holding the beliefs of the church. You don't have any say in the beliefs of the church. Like you don't have any influence over what we believe. That freedom to disagree felt reassuring, but it doesn't anymore. Yeah, that's right. Because other areas of freedom to disagree are about the beliefs that people hold. Like, for example, someone might hold beliefs that would disqualify them from being an elder, their views on the Trinity or inerrancy of scripture or things like that. Um, But if their views change, then they could become qualified. Um, And the disagreement about who's allowed to participate in the oversight and governance of the church is different because no matter how my views change on this issue, I would never be qualified to be an elder and no woman would ever be qualified simply on the basis of them being a woman. Hi, welcome to episode four, The Aftermath, part one. It's been seven months since our first episode. We started this discovery project because I was asked to be a servant to women in our church, Grace Silicon Valley, and asking questions and being curious about women's experiences and beliefs was the best way I knew how to serve. What I didn't know is what would happen to us and to our relationships after that. Let me introduce The Yellow Wallpaper. If you aren't familiar, it's a title of a short story from the 1890s by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. It's a disturbing story, but basically, this woman is locked in a room with yellow wallpaper as a treatment for her, quote, psychosis. The psychosis was misdiagnosed, and many women who were totally sane were deemed insane. The irony is she slowly starts to go insane from being locked in this room by her seemingly loving husband. It's a powerful metaphor. We can look at the metaphor the author uses to ask, what is the pattern you are staring at every day or even participating in that is both, quote, dull enough to confuse the eye in following and, quote, pronounced enough to constantly irritate and provoke study? Some questions you might start asking when you realize you are surrounded by something sharp enough to unsettle you but dull enough to confuse you are, is this just me? Why is no one else talking about this? Am I the crazy one? If we hadn't done these interviews... I don't think we would have recognized the pattern among other women. I definitely don't think we would have recognized what, ironically, was then happening to us. So, what is the yellow wallpaper at Grace? What did we uncover after months of listening and understanding? And what has been the response from leadership in the church? I'll be sharing all that later. I know, I know, super annoying. But first, we want to start off with some of the awesome responses we heard in the past few months 
about how the content of the podcast positively affected some members of this church. Here's the perspective from Allie, a mom of two, Stanford grad, lawyer, and musician who's attended Grace since 2006. The biggest effect on me was realizing that the views that I hold on women in ministry are more widely shared, at least among the sample of women who were interviewed, than I had realized. It made me go back and re-examine some of the feelings that I've had about believing that women should be in ministry, and has prompted me to, along with uh, some friends, both from Grace and uh, who go to other churches, start talking more and researching more and reading more about what the Bible says about women in ministry, and also to sort of wrestle critically with why it is that I have felt embarrassed or ashamed to publicly support women in ministry at Grace, even though it's a view and a belief that I've always held. And I have also had a lot of really fruitful conversations with friends and family. I, I feel like I should preface this by saying we really love Grace, and when we decided to become members of Grace, and still to this day, thought about well, what, what are the things that we feel like God is calling us to at this church, we understood that the church didn't align with our views on women in ministry, but that there were a lot of other really exciting things that God was doing and is doing at Grace. I think a lot of the before state was just avoiding the conversation that we knew that it wasn't something that we talked about much within the Grace community, and we sort of took the same approach with my family. We were fundamentally avoiding the issue. It was like we didn't want to look, we like knew that we had some cognitive dissonance going on between what we believed and the church that we were going to, but we like felt too uncomfortable to even look at. And so we didn't usually. We've been at Grace for so long and we've almost grown comfortable with not examining the, that disconnect. And I felt like the podcast was a really necessary wake-up call for me and for my husband to actually go back and, and re-examine what we believe and why and have to articulate to ourselves and then start articulating to other people what we believe and, and why. And I, I'm not sure if this is a more concrete answer, but I don't think that there is a church that will ever perfectly align on every issue at every level with what I believe. I just think that the Bible says too many things and there are too many ways of reading it for that to be true. But I think that it is important to be able to be intellectually honest about the way that we read the Bible and to be in a community that supports and wants us to be intellectually honest with the way we read the Bible. And I know that that's true of grace for many other issues and within the broader theology. And I trust that it's true of the issue in women ministry as well. I just have been too scared to test that before. And I was worried that supporting ordaining women would be an othering thing that would make me no longer belong. That people would look at me and say, well, she's not, <laughs> she's not really one of us because she doesn't align with the church's views on this issue. Partly... Partly it was fear of not belonging. Partly it was fear of being called out for not knowing enough. I had done some research on what the Bible says about women, but at the point in my life when I decided I didn't want to be a pastor, it was almost like I was doing a cost-benefit analysis of spiritual inquiry and was like, well, I don't want to be a pastor, so it's not worth more of my time to do a like really deep dive. And I was afraid that people would call me out for not having thoroughly research to the question of women in ministry as much as, I guess, as much as I wish I had done. <laughs> and to some level, I think that's still true. Like, I know that it is such a rich area of inquiry in the Bible and in the, the history of the church. And I know that there are people who have dedicated their whole careers to this issue. And so I like, I don't, I like still feel uncomfortable. Like I don't want to put myself forward as an expert on what the Bible says about women in ministry. But I think that that's also selling short the work that God has done through the research and the reading that I have done and selling short the role of the Holy Spirit to help me understand the Bible when I read it. I'm trying to have more faith that God is equipping me to defend my beliefs at the level at which it is appropriate. I mean, I think even having this conversation is something that I'm doing differently. I hope to be less fearful and more trusting of the community that God has built going forward. 
What do I hope happens at Grace in 2021? I hope I see people again. That'd be really lovely. I hope that this becomes an issue that is talked about within the church, both formally and organically. I hope that these conversations keep happening amongst people who attend the church. I hope that there's cross-pollination and exchange of ideas and thoughts between people who believe that women should be ordained and people who don't, because there's both within the church. And I think that there are valued members of the church on both sides of this issue. And independent of what the church or the denomination have as the current rules on ordaining women, I hope that people are able to talk about it within the church without shame and with respect and love as the underlining motivators for the conversations. One of the things that the podcast did that was really valuable to me was to make me feel seen and known and not alone within the community and within the congregation. When I think about it intellectually, I don't think people are actually going to ostracize me for believing that women should be in ordained ministry, even though I have an emotional fear response that maybe they will. It makes me feel like when I, when I listened to the podcast and heard the extent to which this feeling of otherness and discontent and sort of disagreement with the church was, was shared, at least among the women who were interviewed, I did have a feeling of complicitness that, that I felt like I shared their views and was in a position where I could have been more open in my beliefs, but wasn't out of a sort of selfish self-preservation instinct. And that my silence was part of what allowed this disconnect to get so big. <laughs> and I am deeply uncomfortable with that. Like I, I think that that's something that I need to repent of. And I was trying to think like, what could I have done differently? And I, I think that it doesn't need to be treated with quite so much with kid gloves that, that I can be braver about saying what I believe and why. Next, we'll hear from Krista, a mom of two, Harvard grad, and manager at a tech company who attended Grace for the past six years. I think that the podcast really opened my eyes to the fact that I wasn't the only one asking these questions, that some of the people who I always thought of as like the more educated Christians were also asking the same questions. And so they, they, weren't, they weren't stupid questions. I'd always kind of shoved these big questions about gender and leadership and other things down because I thought I just didn't really know enough about the Bible. And I was so intimidated by the fact that I didn't know the Bible, like backwards and forwards and sideways and up and down. And I didn't know every bit of historical context. And so I just kind of repressed some of these questions because I felt like if I knew all of that, I would have the answers and I would understand why things were the way that they were. But after listening to this podcast and talking about it more with, with you and with, with others who have listened to the podcast, I realized that I should be more confident in exploring things. We actually recently relocated. We moved from California to Texas. And so we have this opportunity to find a new church. And I have kind of a whole different perspective on what that's going to look like, how I'm going to choose a church home. Obviously, that's going to be a post-COVID experience. But really, I think just coming out of this and also combined with everything that happened in 2020 and is continuing to happen, of course, in 2021, we just can't say anymore because that's the way that it's always been. I really have always trusted the leaders of the churches that I've been a member of, that they'd fully wrestled with these issues. But now I'm not, I'm not sure if that's completely true. I don't know if we'll find a place with perfect answers to all of these questions, but I do insist on finding a place that's openly wrestling and openly discussing what the hard questions are. And I'm not just talking about gender and leadership. I'm also talking about race and sexuality and other things, just always, always searching. And the other thing that I'll highlight is it's also been really challenging, personally, emotionally challenging to, to think through some of these things because Grace was a really great church home for us when we were in California. I met lifelong friends there. My son was baptized there. I can't minimize the impact that this community had on me and my family. And I feel a little sad as I just wonder if it's possible to find a church where you can really have everything. 
So I would say it's opened my mind a lot. It's made me feel a little bit less crazy for questioning. And it's really inspired me to search deeply for answers and for a community that is doing the same thing. What I'd like to see Grace do is I really would love to see the conversation just open up. I would love to see the church embrace the like vulnerability, for lack of a better term, of not knowing what the answers are. And I would love to hear them say, hey, we've listened to this podcast and we want to talk about it. And I hope that we can all talk about it together. Let's be analytical about it. Let's address the biblical arguments. Let's openly discuss the challenges and then also discuss some of the emotional aspects of it and how it's affected people. I just really hope they can be more honest. I mean, I think the minimum I would expect is, okay, the minimum, minimum is acknowledgement. So I would expect to see an email or some communication that says, hey, look, we, we understand that there are challenging conversations happening. We understand that many of you have even listened to a podcast that a member of our church put together to explore some of these challenges. And we know it's hard and we're wrestling with it too. And if you want to talk, we should. Um, which again, I think like I'm talking minimum, that's the minimum. Mm-hmm. That's really putting, again, the onus on everyone else to come to them and, and discuss it. But I think you know, just one step up from minimum, which would be really cool, um, is to set that up. And I'm talking about like the leaders of the church, the pastors and the elders and everybody getting together to talk about this. Here's a quote from Jane, a mother of two teenagers and a healthcare executive. It's being read by someone else. The reason why I listened to it twice is because the content was so overwhelming and powerful that I reflected upon the words for weeks your podcast changed me. My mother fought to become a church leader. Her determination impacted my parents' marriage and ultimately our church. As a result, from a really young age, I decided that Paul was right. Women should not be preachers. However, her approach was wrong. If you had interviewed me, I would have been the outlier. Now, having listened to your podcast, I believe women should be empowered to lead. Here's a quote from a decade-plus Grace member who wished to remain anonymous. The most meaningful thing that came out of the podcast for me was to realize that I was not alone in asking questions, that there were fellow questioners. The second thing is I listened to most of it with my family, and it was a way for us to connect and answer questions, and I felt known by them. Lastly, it was a catharsis. Except for the shout-outs, there wasn't one that I didn't end up crying in tears with emotion filling me. There's just so much there. It was like, there's work to be done in this place where I'm at, and it affirmed to me that this is where God has me, and I'm on a journey with other people. I don't know the names of these other women, but in theory, I served with them at Grace. I sat with them. I had a donut with them. And I guess if there's people asking this at Grace, where it's a question you don't ask, they're obviously asking it everywhere. So these Christian women are all around me. It's just really awesome to think about. Something I realized is that I'm scared to ask a lot of questions about things, starting with women in the church. When I was younger, I swept my questions under the rug and submitted to the teaching of my church because that was easier than asking the wrong question. And then you have daughters like me, and you're raising them to be actors in the world and for them to know your role in the kingdom of God. And suddenly you can't be scared anymore. I have these kids and their faith in God is more important than my own status and structure of a denomination. This podcast made me realize that I need to be ready to ask these questions in corporate settings. I need to realize how I am complicit with the patriarchy of the church. It worked for me. It made me comfortable. It made my family comfortable. It made my ministry comfortable. But as I grow in my understanding, I have all these questions. I need to get them answered because my children's salvation is at stake. I wanted to spit myself out for being lukewarm on the matter. What's changed for me is to be a bold questioner and grow in that. In 2021, I want to keep asking hard questions in a community of believers that makes me feel safe. Before the first episode came out, Melissa shared the full set of 34 interview questions with some of the church leadership and asked what they were interested in hearing the answers to. In the last seven months, no one, including any pastors, elders, or staff members, has asked us about what we found out from the last four questions of our interviews. What were the last four questions? Well, they were all questions around experiences of being treated unfairly at grace, hearing of others being treated unfairly at grace, 
and opinions on how they hope the church responds when people are treated unfairly. At the same time, after the podcast came out, various women started to come forth and share their stories with us. Today, we're going to share a few of those stories with you. Some names, some anonymous. They're intense. Unlike before, these are their actual voices. If you don't want to hear these women's stories for whatever reason, now would be a good time to hit stop on your phone. Before diving in, I want to acknowledge that there is a spectrum of experience. Imagine a horizontal line. On the left, there are women who have had no issues attending grace. On the right, there are women who have had issues attending grace. All women who attend grace can fit on this line. Now, imagine a vertical line. On the positive y-axis, you have involvement in the church. The more involved, the higher on the line. Now, the less involved, lower in the negative axis. So, the top right are women who have been very involved and have had issues while attending grace. The bottom left are women who haven't been very involved and have not had issues while attending grace. Plot yourself. Plot the women whose stories you're about to hear. Listen for the patterns. It was really interesting for us and surprising. First, we're going to hear from Sarah, a woman who grew up in Palo Alto, became a Christian at Grace Silicon Valley 15 years ago, and worked for more than 10 years on the church staff, helping and then leading the children's ministry. Just so you know, what she means when she says the session. The session is a group of men who oversee the church, elected by the church body. It's not staff. You do not have to have gone to seminary, although you do have to be ordained by the denomination, which means to be given official priestly authority in a church setting. While they provide governance and oversight for the church, the Book of Church Order for the PCA makes it clear that the role of elder is a relational role, that they should, quote, visit the people in their homes, comfort the mourner, nourish and guard the children of the church, pray for and with the people. The session refers to both the group of men who have voting privileges and the name of the meeting where they meet every month or so. So you could say, so-and-so is invited to session, or you could say, the session decided to. The session includes the ordained ministers. Some churches limit the elders' term to a certain number of years, but the ordination is for life. However, I haven't seen that term limiting at this church in our eight years here. Hi, my name is Sarah. My husband and I became Christians at Grace 15 years ago, and I worked at the church for nearly 10 years in the children's ministry. I raised my four kids here and was deeply embedded in the life of this church. In 2017, after Laura resigned as the director of children's ministries, the pastors offered me the job. I'd worked with Laura for years and wanted to continue loving the children and families at Grace as well as she had, but I was nervous. I knew it was a hard role. I felt very confident in my ability to love, care for, and keep children safe, but because I didn't grow up in the church, I wanted to get some mentoring, specifically from the pastors or elders, before I felt comfortable taking on the official title of director. I had also seen in the past how children's ministry could feel a bit like a silo ministry or like contracted workers, you know, not quite as much in the loop. So I was hoping that this was a way to get more collaboration. So I said yes to going full time and taking on the extra tasks, management and administrative duties. But I was hoping to be a bit more invested in before officially assuming the director title. By November of 2018, I started feeling really lonely in my job. I started telling the pastors that I needed to feel more connection, that I needed to have someone to talk to, and that things were getting harder in my job. I didn't feel like I was being poured into. By January of 2019, I think I was trying to do everything I could not to burn out. So what I started to do was listen to kid ministry podcasts, any podcasts supporting people who were involved in kids ministry. I just knew I needed to find support and community somewhere if I was going to be able to last in ministry. I needed to hear people pour into people who were doing kid ministry saying, don't quit. You know, this is why it's so important. I knew I wasn't getting what I needed from Grace, so I was trying to seek it out and understand how I can strengthen myself and continue to thrive and be able to make things happen because I really, really wanted to do this. I had big dreams of how I wanted to make Grace's children's ministry even more inclusive and inviting and how I wanted to help people feel more known and loved. By the spring of 2019, I was actively talking to the pastors in our two-on-ones, which is like it's a meeting with one employee and both pastors. It happens about every 10 weeks or so. And I was telling them that I needed more connection. Um, I needed someone I could talk to. 
I shared with them that I was using podcasts to find motivation, connection, and support. Some suggestions were made to me, like joining a community group as a way to help solve my problems. I let them know that this was upsetting because it made me feel like I was seen more like a volunteer instead of a full-time ministry partner who had been on staff for nearly a decade, pouring into a big portion of the church. I couldn't understand why so little was being offered to me. I felt like both pastors weren't fully listening to me or trying to understand my needs. Around the same time, I was also asking the pastors for help with a complicated relationship with another person within the Grace community, which did affect my work within the children's ministry. It didn't feel like they were understanding, so then I felt like I had to tell them about specific interactions. I was looking for help navigating. I was needing their wisdom. I needed them to get involved. I didn't get that. Instead, I felt that my judgment of the situation was doubted and that I wasn't fully believed. I started noticing this happening more, me talking to the pastors about certain things and them questioning the situation, like, are you sure, asking if maybe it happened another way, basically placing doubt around something I understood very clearly. It felt like they would rather insert confusion around the situation than to try and work through it with me. So I was feeling really confused, like, oh, I guess I shouldn't have like talked about that. Are they disappointed in me? I just don't understand. What am I doing wrong here? I wanted to be honest and upfront about what was going on. I wanted their help to make this relationship better and stronger. I needed their help, but it really felt like they didn't want to get involved, like it wasn't their problem. But they were my bosses, and I knew my work situation wasn't going to improve without their efforts. My family took a vacation in the summer of 2019, and on that trip, I said to my husband, I think I might want to quit my job. You know, like, what do you think about that? He was surprised. He knew how much I loved working with the kids. So I started talking to him more about what was going on, what was hard, and he started to give me advice on how to really assert myself and ask for what I needed in this job and in this ministry. So I felt committed to keep trying. One thing I did was write and print out exactly what I wanted from this program and what those goals were. I shared it with both pastors in my next two-on-one, and one pastor took the piece of paper and literally just pushed it off to the side of his desk and started talking about something else. I think they had no idea that they just ignored my heart and dreams. I needed feedback. I needed some brainstorming. I needed to understand, is this something that the session would support? Um, I needed collaboration. So I was like, no, we need to come back to this. This is important to me. This is my time. I won't meet with you guys again for like 10 weeks. This is what I put together to talk about. I was getting frustrated with them. I didn't feel like they had much interest in collaborating with me about the children's ministry. It didn't feel like they viewed it as part of their job. And it, it felt like the message that I was receiving was that I had financial support and prayers. Why wasn't that good enough for me? I was really wanting them to say, like, here's this elder you can talk to or someone else you can talk to and meet with, or those are good ideas. We want to help you make this happen, or even that won't work, and here's why. I didn't really hear those things, so to me, it didn't feel like developing the children's ministry was a priority to them or the session. I started wondering more and more, you know, like, what is my role here? The thing I did know for sure was that my emotional state was weakening. I didn't feel like I was being helped or truly listened to. I was doing ministry alone. I was barely getting by, never mind growing in my role. I was fighting to stay alive in my job, but it was getting so hard. I felt like I was struggling to keep my head above water. I remember thinking, like, all I wanted was a hand. Like, can somebody grab my hand? I want to do this job. I literally will do this ministry for, like, the rest of my life. That's how much I love it. I just, I'm needing a hand right now. I just never felt that hand. I started really noticing that this wasn't a good employment situation for me anymore. I needed to be done, but I cared so deeply about Grace Kids. I didn't want to just drop the ball on 10 years of investing in this ministry, in these people. I was initially hoping to speak with the session about possibly hiring a male pastor for the children's ministry. I felt like a man would get more influence with the session and be able to center the children's ministry more. One thing that had always been a struggle for me was my lack of inclusion in the session meetings. In all my years on staff, I had only been invited twice. I definitely feel like that's because I'm a woman. So I thought, if I'm leaving, I want this role to be sustainable. I don't want the next person to do this job to be where I am 
going through the same struggles I'm going through, dying out in a few years. I also really wanted to communicate to the session some of the difficulties I ran into as a woman trying to be a ministry leader at Grace. And I had been around long enough to notice a trend, a pattern. It wasn't just me. I thought as a leader, it was important that I point out some of the blind spots I was able to see, not to be hurtful, but to help make things better. Otherwise, how would they ever know? And wouldn't they want to know? In August of 2019, I told David and Iron I needed to resign from my job. Everything was getting really hard, and on top of that, I was noticing a shift in my relationship with the pastors. It was getting more uncomfortable. I was worried I was ultimately going to have a bad breakup with my church. That scared me. It was a very difficult decision because I absolutely loved, 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 loved leading the children's ministry. Being with the kids every Sunday, I felt like I found my true calling. I did not want to quit, but this was no longer a healthy place for me. I told the pastors I wanted to give them plenty of time and that I would help work with them to find somebody for this role. I gave them four months notice so that I could get the ministry through the busy holiday season. Maybe a week later, David and Iron brought me into their office and told me that the session had decided what to do about filling my role with Grace Kids. I was upset. Mostly because the session, which had historically been very uninvolved in Grace Kids, made a decision without wanting to hear from me. It was insulting to me that I had not been invited into the conversation. Clearly the final decision is theirs, but to not even invite me into the conversation? I knew more about Grace Kids than anyone else. I dedicated years helping to build that ministry building strong and caring relationships with the kids, the parents, the volunteers, and the childcare employees. It was a real reminder to me that no matter how long I worked there, which was longer than any staff member other than David, I would never have any real say or seat at the table. I was really emotional and things got a little heated in that meeting. At one point, I told the pastors I wanted to speak with the session. They told me they didn't know that, but they also thought it was best if I did not. I felt like I was being judged unfit to meet with the session because I was upset. I definitely felt like I was being perceived by the pastors as too emotional. But from where I was sitting, that level of emotion was warranted. I think I got a little freaked out at this point. I sensed that after 15 years at this church, something had shifted, and I had a sort of fight for my reputation all of a sudden. That didn't sit well with me. I felt like another narrative was being written, one that didn't really tell the full story. Yes, I was frustrated. I felt my bosses were not supporting me. Yes, I got upset. I was not getting the kind of respect that I felt I deserved. I was a woman of strong character. I had worked tirelessly for them and this church for years. I had made many sacrifices to do this work. I was always very honest with them. I didn't understand what was happening or why. After all that, to me, there was obviously this tension, and I felt like the pastors were more distant and not interested in trying to make things better. I really wanted things to be restored. But it felt to me like they were just kind of done with me. Like we were all just counting down days until I was gone. Coming into the office was getting really uncomfortable for me those last couple of months. We acted like we moved on, like things were fine. They were not. We were pleasant with each other, but things were not better. They were just being ignored. There was no reconciliation, just a giant elephant in the room. My last Sunday at Grace Kids was on December 29th of 2019. I was a crying mess as I hugged those kids and parents goodbye that day. At that point, I think I knew in my heart I probably wasn't going to see them anytime soon, at least not at Grace. That was a really hard day for me. Sometime in January of 2020, one of the pastors texted me and said, we want to honor you one Sunday at church, like on stage. I hadn't been to Grace since my last day and the thought of going back there made me feel deep anxiety. So I was like, no, I'm not doing that. By that point, I was seeing a counselor trying to understand what exactly had happened here. 
I was dealing with some trauma from this situation. Uh, I would have felt like the biggest phony if I got on that stage and allowed them to honor me in front of the congregation when I didn't feel like I was truly valued or cared for in a way I deserved. And when I knew in my heart that we had a fractured relationship, I told my husband, I don't know how I can go back there and how they can be my pastors. It was different now. I knew he was worried, like this was the only church we've ever known. He said, let's just try one more time to fix this. So I wrote an email to David and Iron about what was hard for me, how I was dealing with everything, and how I really needed them to show up and thought that they just didn't. They both quickly replied that they were sorry I felt hurt. And I was like, oh, wow, I feel seen, you know, just by them saying that. But then my husband pointed out, like, Sarah, they didn't exactly own up to anything. They just said, they're sorry you feel hurt. Around this time, one elder reached out to me to meet for lunch. For context, in 10 years of ministry, not once had an elder ever reached out to me for coffee, dinner, anything. Not a single time until this elder had first in November, after I had put in my notice, he and his wife had my husband and I over for dinner. I met with this elder in March, uh, but it became apparent that this was more damage control or box checking when I thought was hoping it was going to be more due diligence. Like, hey, you're a longtime servant here. What happened that brought you to this point? Nope. There was some more, I'm sorry, you're hurt, a little bit more ownership, like we let you down. He also said, I hear your story and understand your side too, which confirmed to me that there was another side being told. I told this elder, as far as I can see, grace hurts women, whether it's fully known or not. I've seen it and heard it in other women, and I knew how hurt I was. The feeling I left that conversation with was, it is what it is. This elder was sweet, and I knew he cared, but he didn't really take any steps to try and make things better. So I assumed either he didn't believe me, or there wasn't this deep desire um, to change or try and do better. At this point, I was feeling pretty wrecked. My husband was getting frustrated with the pastors. I didn't know it at the time, but he had reached out to them privately and asked them to try harder to help. COVID was happening, so we met with the pastors and that one elder via Zoom. I should not have been on that call. I wasn't in a good place. I was hurting. The call was meant to be one of healing. It was not. It was me and four men. I didn't feel like they wanted to be there. I was trying to convey to them how hard this had all been for me. I just could not understand, like, what happened here? I'm just so confused. I cared about them. I thought they cared about me. I didn't feel like they were, you know, willing to acknowledge or validate anything that I was saying. And other than one pastor owning the fact that he should have helped me out with that complicated relationship, there was no humbling or accountability. I cried a lot. At one point, I started talking about a miscarriage I had years before, I, I don't know, as a way to try and get them to understand like how painful this had all been. I was embarrassed about that later, but then I realized it's because this whole thing just felt like death to me. I was devastated to walk away from the ministry I loved, and now I felt like this was it for me and my church. The only church I ever knew, where my husband and I and our four kids had all been baptized, that is a heavy and deep loss. That is deserving of great grief and mourning. That should be understood and comforted. Instead, that's when one pastor chose to say, well, you told me you were a hot mess. I did tell him that, months before, half-joking in a private conversation with someone I thought I could trust. But that comment was pulled out of context and used in this moment to make me look bad. At that moment, I knew I needed to be done here. I felt like I was being thrown under the crazy bus. In my head, I was like, you need to get off this Zoom call right now. Just say whatever you need to say and get off this call. Just get away. One of the last things I asked in that call was, who's advising you on how to care for women? Because honestly, their care felt like shame and judgment. There was no response. And then one pastor jokingly suggested the name of one elder's wife, then followed that up by saying, yeah, it's awkward. I don't think I could feel safe going to that church again. 
I lost trust in the pastors and I felt abandoned by the session. And the elders, except for one elder who doesn't have kids, I took care of every single one of their kids and grandkids year after year. Every Sunday, both as a volunteer and then as a staff member, I held those kids, I sang to them, and I told them over and over how much Jesus loves them. Four out of five of the elders chose to never acknowledge me, my service, or the fact that I was stepping down. That's four months worth of Sundays that I was at Grace after giving notice, where I feel like they could have stopped by on a Sunday to see me, sent me a text, email, made a phone call. Their silence was hurtful. But one of the pastors did let me know that the elders thought my 10 years on staff was a good run. So apparently at this church, men get careers and women get good runs. <laughs> That's not okay. I served Grace Presbyterian Church for nearly a decade on staff, 15 years as a member. And at the end of the day, I feel that I was not fully valued by the people who lead and guide that church. Even though I was being told that I was valued, I don't believe I was treated that way. It's been a little over a year since my last day at Grace. Not a single day has gone by since that I haven't thought about all this. It's been hard. Um, it's been really hard. It feels like for so many years I listened to sermons talking about how we're a family and how we need to show up for one another and walk with each other um, through hard and dark times. I really believe that. I wanted to do that. I tried to do that. But then I needed some of that. And honestly, I felt like I was looking around was like, family, where are you at? Last August, my husband reached out to let the session know that we would not be returning to Grace. The first few months after leaving my job, I definitely did some deconstructing of my faith. I had to go through this alone. I didn't have my faith community to process it with. Uh, I didn't have my pastors to process it with. It was a sad and scary time. But once I got to the end of that deconstruction path, I knew in my heart that I wasn't supposed to stay there. I was only meant to feel the emptiness for a minute. In so many ways, I feel a deeper and more authentic relationship with God after all this. I'm trying to have honest conversations with God, and I'm trying to see how God shows up in this. I'm not sure how I feel about church these days. Honestly, it reminds me of pain. I don't know when I'll be ready to try again. I've lost some trust, and I have this gut reaction to protect myself. But lately, I feel God at work there too. My love for Jesus has only grown bigger. Through my struggles this past year, I understand how to show up for people better. I've learned how to love even bigger. This whole experience has made me want to love those in the margins even more, like Jesus showed us. Next, we're going to hear from Janae, a woman who started going to Grace when she was 10 years old, and that was 19 years ago. She was basically raised at this church. Her first job at the church was during her summers from college, and after college, she was the preschool and elementary school coordinator. I was like in like fifth, sixth grade when we started going. I always feel like I need to explain that first because that leads into a lot of what was difficult about working there later. She left the preschool elementary role at Grace when she heard there was an opening at the church's South Bay site as the teen's director, an age group she was more inclined to and had more experience with. She was there for almost two years. The entire time that I worked there, it was a very weird split in my mind of I loved, loved, loved the job, but I really struggled with the management. I loved those kids. It was great. It was amazing to be a part of their lives and get to know them and get to be so creative with that job. But I pretty immediately struggled with not feeling any sort of support from the pastors. So at the beginning, when you were hired, the previous director was still working and he was supposed to be transitioning out. What happened after you were hired? They didn't tell anybody that I was going to be the director. In fact, most people thought I was just the intern. There was no explanation, really, to the families what I was. 
I was already stepping into the role of directorship, but it was abundantly clear. Like nobody knew that and nobody was going to correct anybody Mm -hmm. about it. Kind of made it hard for me of like, okay, well, what's going on? So that whole transition was really not smooth. After he left, we had a meeting with all the parents and it felt very, oh, we're just going to make Janae the director. When I left the meeting, I was like, I think they just think I'm the director right now and they're looking for somebody else. It didn't feel like it was conveyed to anybody. They specifically chose me out of many applicants. They hired me. I interviewed like anybody else. You know, it wasn't just a, hey, you work here. It just proceeded to be a lot of me working really hard and like loving what I was doing, but feeling like it was a constant uphill battle of trying to get support from any adults in the church to invest at all in the youth. And that I personally believe that that was fueled very much by the pastors did not step up and say, hey, we chose Janae. We interviewed her. We hired her. She's the person. Let's get behind her. Who wants to help? Let's talk to her about how we can help. Yeah, it was rough. (laughs) I remember asking them multiple times to, from the pulpit, from the stage, whatever you want to call it, asking them, can you say, hey, our teams need help. They need mentors, you know, not hey, Janae needs help. And every time that any opportunity came up, it was they asked me to either step up and ask for help or they said, Janae needs people to help with the youth group. And I remember being really, really frustrated about that a lot because it was just never was like, we are approving as a church. This is something we should be doing. Mm -hmm. It was just like, Janae needs some help. Anybody want to help Janae? (laughs) Yeah, a rough start. But you worked as the teens director for two years. What happened? I have so many layers in what all went down that it's kind of hard to separate them from each other. Mm -hmm. But I'd say like the three big layers to me of what happened is that one, I've been to the church since I was a kid. One of the current pastors. Was my youth pastor when I was a child. The other layer that has to be said, and like, I don't mind sharing this at all, but um, while I was a Grace Teen director, I met with them, they gave me some feedback and their feedback about me was some people felt, some kids felt like I didn't care about them because I talk so much, which I do. And I cried, I was very upset, you know, obviously that's a crummy feeling. And it actually led me to go and figure out what's wrong with me? Why can't I keep my mouth shut? And I got diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, you know, like as a 28 year old woman, I was like, whoa, okay. That was really life changing for me because I didn't even know anything about it. And I personally don't think that they handled that well. They were not supportive with my needs for ADHD. So I got diagnosed with ADHD and was trying to figure out what in the world's wrong with me. What do I need in a workplace to support me with that? Um, but then I personally really did feel throughout my entire time there that being a woman made me lesser than because I was the only female full-time staff member. It was truthfully like uncomfortable. So it's like, of course, I'm the odd man out and you're all friends. But in the office building, they all had their own office room and I did not. I was offered to, they said, you can work here. You can work in one of our offices. I don't want to work in your office. I, if I have an office, like I'm coming to work to, at the office, I want my own office. So that didn't happen, obviously. It just felt very like I was the odd man out. And what was it that made me the odd man out, mm-hmm. you know? Right. So physically, they all have their own private space. And then outside the office, they're all publicly friends. And you weren't part of either of those spaces. So after two years, you were abruptly fired. Can you tell me about that? I can fully and truthfully tell you I had no idea I was getting fired. And this is actually where I get very emotional about it because I felt 100% blindsided um, and betrayed. I I had no clue. I had like kind of really been struggling with them for, I mean, I don't really know how long, but 
the last month, I remember, I'm like, this is hopeless. The elders, the pastors, they are giving me zero support. This is awful. And looking back, I now know, oh, they had our, they knew they were firing me. And so they were distancing themselves. I think it was Sunday, you know, after church, after all my typical church duties, I think they said, hey, we need to see you tomorrow. I think you should bring Daniel. So she met the next day with the two pastors, an elder, and a female church member. I was bawling as soon as I walked in, and they just said, as of tomorrow, tomorrow will be your last day working here. So they gave me no explanation other than just like, this isn't working out, and you seem like you hate it. I don't hate the job. No, I didn't. I was really in a very frustrated place with them, but I did not hate the job. And that was extremely frustrating because they were telling me how I felt. And I felt the entire time that they were telling me how I felt. And when I would say, no, 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 this is how I felt, how I feel. This is how I feel. They just kind of nod, oh, okay. I think maybe six months before they fired me, we had a meeting that was just, they said, you know, it's just a review, a regular job review. And later when I met with them, they told me, yeah, that was our, if you don't fix this, you're fired. That was their idea of the warning signs. It was never, ever brought up at all in that meeting that like, if that didn't change, things happen or whatever. I believe truly I changed so much from that meeting. You know, I learned that I had ADHD. I, I met with all the parents. I said, hey, this is what I have going on, and I really want to learn how to love your kids better. Everything in that meeting that they told me to work on, I did to the best of my ability. When I was fired, they they said very clearly, they really wanted to take care of me and take care of Tina, and they gave me a generous severance pay. So... After I was fired in my long emotional emails, I mentioned just that I truly didn't understand that how many godly men that I respect, the elders, the pastors, don't understand how they all went into a room and this was the decision that they came to, that I was so problematic that I needed to be removed immediately. Some background. Great Silicon Valley, the church Janae was raised in, planted and supported another site 20 minutes away in the South Bay called Grace South Bay. Same denomination and pastors until they eventually split off to support themselves in leadership and finances. When she talks about how they all went into a room, the room at that time still meant leadership from both locations, which means up to 10 men making this decision representing both sites. After the initial firing, she met with both pastors from the South Bay site independently. They listened and nodded Well, I said, you know, I wasn't done with this job. You just took it from me. I feel like I had no say in this and had no clue what was going on and had something ripped away from me. You know, my ministry and the kids are hurt by it because they don't understand, you know, where am I going? There was no firm, like, we felt like you weren't fulfilling the job. It was always just like, we thought you hated it. They never said anything to indicate an apology or that they would change anything about their decision. No, 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 no. They certainly were obviously sad that I was sad. They were apologetic about the fact that I was upset, but they were very, very guarded against me. It just felt like they were like, we're not going to get into this with you. We're not, we're not going to enter into this because you're emotional. You're not speaking rationally. Like this is just too much for us. I can say with certainty that that's partially how they felt because they met with Daniel, my husband, and essentially said to him, well, you know how Janae is. You can't talk to her. She's unreasonable. I had already met with them two or maybe three times and gotten nowhere. I felt like I still had no idea why I was fired. So the entire time I met with them, it just felt like they were just like, we're doing this, we're meeting with you because we have to, not because we want to. 
we just have to like hear you out and pat your back stay there get it all out and then you'll go away but so they met with daniel i don't remember if bob or steven told daniel this but they said to him essentially we just decided it danae wasn't worth the time to train she wasn't worth the effort to train to do her job well and you know how she is when you try and tell her something she just doesn't listen and so that's what we got is just apparently at some point they decided to give up and I don't know why but they just decided ugh, she's too difficult she's too emotional she's too defensive whatever it is she's too much effort to talk with and give constructive criticism to. I told them that working with them, to me, like the best analogy I could give it was I was drowning trying to do this work. And the analogy that I gave them was they're just standing in the boat yelling like, good, you can do it, versus throwing me a life preserver. It just seems like they were like, ah, tick the box. I encouraged her. There we go. But I'm not going to help the person who we hired do their job. Okay, so employers can fire employees. That happens. They don't have to explain why, but we think this is different. One of the pastors was her youth pastor. She grew up in this exact church. She was diagnosed with a medical condition. There were no warnings that were clear to Janae. No performance improvement plans, no coaching, no help, and no effort to repair the damage. It certainly felt like the entire time they felt like I was this chore that they had to tick off. When I told them I felt completely blindsided by the fact that I was fired, I was like, I had no clue. And they said, well, we started meeting with you weekly and we that meeting with you six months ago and we're making you, you know, write down your calendar in a Google Docs so that we could all see, you know, so we could keep track of your hours. One, the six months ago meeting, they never mentioned anything about possibly firing me. They mm-hmm. said, this is a super routine, very regular meeting. Then they were like, you know, the we're meeting with you once a week. That should have showed you that like there were problems. I had requested to them that we meet every week to touch base. So I thought that the once a week meetings were them granting my request because I felt like I was out of the loop with Mm -hmm. them. And then when they said the Google Doc thing, it's everybody's doing it. They said, oh, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. We're all staff. We all shared a calendar. Like everybody could see each other's calendar. And they specifically said, don't worry about it. I was trying to get on the same page, and somehow they thought it was their idea, and that, that was like part of the signs that I was getting fired. Like, I, so I don't have any clue how any of those things were supposed to be a sign that I was getting fired. But it just seemed very much like I was trying to fix it and they were not interested in fixing it. Okay, so you were fired. You moved away two and a half months later because you couldn't afford to stay in California and because Grace was one of the things tethering you to this area. One of the pastors sent you a baby gift and said congrats. And the other? has still not even acknowledged that I've had a meal. There's a lot, lot of pain. Uh, he, after I was fired, he was very standoffish and gave me no comfort. I had to throw myself, plan myself a going away party when I was moving. I planned it at the same time as some youth group thing that they had plans that I didn't know about. And he asked me if I planned it that day on purpose um, to draw people away, to make people choose whose side they were on. I, I went to church for one last time just to say goodbye to everybody, which I didn't sit in on the sermon. I just actually sat in the bathroom crying. But after church, I asked if he was coming to the like going away. We were just, meeting at lunch I, I I went up and asked him are you coming and he said well do do you want me there and I said do you want to be there and he said do you want me there and I said yes I want you there he came for like 
five minutes and then left. Yeah. yeah he has not said, not been asked at all, like, how's that going? How are you doing? Are you okay? How's your child? Congrats on your child. Nothing like that. And that really stinks because he was my youth pastor all through high school. Like, that's a big deal. That's a person who informs your faith during your formative years. And I just feel like even if he didn't like me, even if he feels like he got to know me and he doesn't like me now, as my pastor, my former pastor, I don't think he's showing has shown me any of God's love. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's been loving at all. And that's probably the most painful part of it is that it felt like it was just a legal transaction. And now I'm to be thrown away. There's one elder that I remember he just said, you know, that he didn't exactly agree with what went down. And I didn't really push, you know, I didn't really say, well, what what did go down? Now I kind of wish I had said that. But this was like a few weeks after. So I was just so far over it because I had been blocked so many times by everybody asking because I just repeatedly was asking for meetings with Bob and Steven. I was like, I still don't understand what happened. I still don't understand. I loved working there. I loved the kids. I really loved the community of Grace, but I didn't feel trusted. I didn't feel supported. Looking back, it feels like they, the second there was anything difficult or like, oh, she can't do this on her own because no person should be doing it on their own because that's not how you groups work. One person can't magically mentor 30 kids, you know, to a deep level. Um, I felt like they shut down and like looking back, I'm like, that's what all the struggle was. The struggle was that I thought we were working together when really I was just running my wheels, biding time until I get fired. There have been a lot of consequences for me from working at that job. I've had a really hard time going back to church. I've had a really hard time reading my Bible and having any sort of like structured relationship with God because it all reminds me of grace. And that really stinks because essentially everything I know about the gospel, I learned there. And I learned from those people who are there. And it's been really difficult because any passages that I taught on in the youth group, I now feel like are just marked with trauma. I honestly, I worry about going back into the workforce because I don't know how to interact anymore. I feel like I'm constantly going to be second-guessing myself because I don't understand what happened and what went wrong in this job. And even in, like, relationships, am I doing things wrong? I just, I feel like, am I doing things wrong or am I being perceived as wrong and I don't know it just because I don't know how to shut up, basically, how to be quiet very well. And so I think that that's perceived as back-talking in some environments. Then I'm difficult, you know? One part that was hard was that the whole firing thing was shrouded in mystery to the congregation. Her husband said it felt like people were suspicious of them. Some just stopped talking to them like they did something bad. Janae and her husband paid the price socially, but so did the teens. The part that broke my heart would be specifically that my whole ministry is to these kids and these students that are growing and learning about the gospel and seeing who is Jesus, what what does God's love mean? And to me, that's what my job was to say, hey, I'm not perfect. I'm obviously not Jesus. But I want you to know that this is a fraction of what God's unconditional love feels like. 
And when I was fired, that was ripped away from me. And one of the students told me, yeah, you can't trust anybody. You can't, you can't rely on anyone. You can't trust anyone because even if they want to be with you still, they can be ripped away from you at any moment. She trusted me. She loved me. She knew I loved her, you know, and she was someone who I connected with her as a mentor. She felt that I understood her and suddenly I was being ripped away. And, you know, I had, I said to them, I'm not, I'm not done with this ministry, but they just, uh, next day I was gone. It felt like it defeated, destroyed so much of what I had worked to build in these kids' lives. And for a lot of them, they needed that. That concludes part one of the Aftermath episode. Part two is up next. <laughs>